Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Today we begin John chapter 8. We'll see the last verse of chapter 7, but uh, we'll mainly be in chapter 8. And I should say up front that the event that we're going to study today in John chapter 8 is of questionable canonicity. The event of the woman who was caught in adultery. There are serious questions as to whether this event was in the original canon of Scripture. Most Bibles have it marked off by brackets. If you're reading from an NESB, it'll have brackets bracketing off from the last verse of chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. And many Bibles have a little footnote notating this. The oldest and best manuscripts do not have this event the event of the woman caught in adultery. Some manuscripts do have it, but they'll have a little obelisk or an asterisk, some sort of symbol noting that there's an issue with this text. Others have the manuscript, other manuscripts have the event, but they place it elsewhere in the book of John. Or some manuscripts have the event, some ancient Greek manuscripts have the event, But they don't have it in the Gospel of John at all. They have it in, say, the Gospel of Luke. Because there is this question about the canonicity of this event, some believe that it should not be taught. I don't take that approach. I think the event of the woman caught in adultery should be taught because it's in our Bibles. And although it's not in the best manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts, It is in some manuscripts. And in fact, it was in the Bible that was used for the church for well over a thousand years, the Vulgate, the the Latin translation of the Bible. It's in the Vulgate. And so I believe the event should be taught, the event of the woman caught in adultery, I believe it should be taught, and that is what we will do this morning. Beginning with chapter 7, verse 53. There we read this. Everyone went to his home, chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Most of chapter 7, the events of chapter 7 deal with the the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths in the capital, in Jerusalem. The feast is now over, and so everyone goes home, but Jesus doesn't have a home. And so he goes to the Mount of Olives. You remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 9, 58. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nets, nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so Jesus would often stay with someone. He'd spend the night in someone's house like, like he did with little Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. He'd stay as a guest in someone's house. Just think about that for a minute. Can you imagine the Son of God in your house and you getting the the bedroom ready for Him? The Son of Man, the Messiah, and you being sure there's enough, the, the, the meal is prepared properly? This is what many people had the opportunity, and I use the word opportunity intentionally, opportunity, It was an opportunity that Zacchaeus had. It was an opportunity that people had to have the Son of God 
spend the night in their house, stay as a guest in their house. But that's not what's happening here, because Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, and apparently he spend the night, spends the night out in the open air. This is what the, the layout of the city looks like. You see the, you see the, the, the temple mount here. The events of the Feast of Tabernacles was happening here in the temple itself, other than them going down to the Pool of Siloam, the priest collecting water and coming back up. So the events of chapter 7 happen there in Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is here just to the east, separated by the Kidron Valley. And if you want kind of a, a, a more modern look at that, you'd see, you see this photo here of in the, the closest part to, the, to, to us is the Kidron Valley there where, where it dips down. And then up on the hill is the part of the ridge of the Mount of Olives. This is the, the, the setting of where Jesus goes and he spends the night after the, the Feast of Booths, which lasts seven days and then the eighth day is a closing ceremony. After that's all over, he goes to the Mount of Olives. Everybody else goes home. He spends the night in the, at the Mount of Olives on the ground, I assume. And then the next morning, he comes back. Keep reading in verse 2 of chapter 8. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Jesus is very well known, and so people are interested in his teaching. He arrives very early in the morning, it says, very early to the temple. The Greek word here for very early in the morning is the word that means at, at dawn. So when it says very early, it's very early. People gather to listen to Jesus. Even though the Feast of Booths is over, there's still a lot of people there in Jerusalem. Number one, they're the residents of the city. I mean, there there are plenty of people who live in the city. But there are possibly pilgrims who haven't, you know, they've come from other areas of the land of Israel for the feast, for the week. And maybe they stay there just a few more days. And so there's, there's still a lot of people in the city They gather around Jesus to listen to him very early in the morning. He's in the outer part of the temple. And so if you want an artist's rendition of what this looks like, you'd see there the large structure, that's the temple, or that's the holy place. And deep inside the holy place is the Holy of Holies. Then there are four courtyards here. You see the, the... um, the, the priest's courtyard here, the courtyard of, it says the Israelites' courtyard, which is really the, the courtyard of the men. You have the women's courtyard, and then you have the courtyard of the Gentiles on the outside of this. These events <clears throat> of John chapter 8 are going to happen here, <clears throat> excuse me, in the women's courtyard. That's where Jesus is seated. Rabbis usually taught from a seated position. And that's where the people have gathered around him to listen. And you have an event that is going to disturb all of this in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Now, scribes were part of the experts of the law. Most of the scribes were Pharisees. 
They were theologians slash lawyers. And as I mentioned at the 930, every time I see the word lawyer in the New Testament, I cringe. Because it's always portrayed in a bad light. Lawyers in the sense that they were accusers. They were the, they were the people who were experts in the law. They're theologians, but they're, they also accuse the wrongdoers who violate the law. Keep reading in verse 3. Let me just read the whole verse. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. This is a very serious matter. Marriage is at the core of any culture. It's the most basic unit of a society. It's the first institution that God created in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Marriage is to be guarded and protected. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 10, verse 9. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Let no man separate. Remember what God, the, the, the language that God uses in Genesis 2? They will be one flesh. The husband and the wife will be one flesh. United in bodies. United in soul. United in will. What God has put together, let no man separate, are the words of Jesus. And adultery, sexual infidelity, is one of the ways that man, in his great offense to God, in his great arrogance, separates that which God has joined. Adultery can be committed not just through physical means, but adultery can be committed in the mind. In the thoughts, you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Our culture, make no mistake, finds adultery exciting, alluring, The illicit sexual affair in our society is thought of as sensational. And that's because we hate God. We ignore God. And by ignoring Him, we hate Him. We ignore Him because we hate Him. We ignore Him as a product of our disregarding and despising God. And so, of course, we have no problem. No problem at all. I should say it this way. We have minimal problem. Minimal problem. Separating that which God has joined. That's why Hollywood portrays sexual relations between a husband and a wife as boring and lame. Where they portray the illicit adulterous affair as sensational and exciting. Because Hollywood is... They're making movies that we want as a culture. I'm not talking about necessarily the people in this room, but that we as a society want. They're a reflection of the society. They're a reflection of how we as a culture have come to hate God and hate God's ways and hate the institution that is at the core of any society. Marriage itself. Adultery is a great offense before God. 
It's an attack on the institution of marriage. It's an attack on the family. It's an attack on the kids who are the product of the marriage. It's an attack on the fabric of society. And it is an attack on the faithful spouse. On the spouse who's not the cheater. The prohibition against adultery is identified there in the Ten Commandments. It's the Seventh Commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Exodus 20, verse 14. Very straightforward. There's not a bunch of complicated Hebrew text there. It's a very straightforward statement. Don't commit adultery. A very, very serious offense. So much of a serious offense that when God gave the law to Moses, He said, with respect to adultery... You are to execute the man and the woman engaged in adultery. And it's not the way we do executions today, right? 20 years after the, after the offense, after we fed the, the, the murderer with Twinkies and ice cream and steak, and he's been staying in club fed for 20 years, and then we softly, quietly put him to sleep. That's not how capital punishment was instituted by God. The punishment for adultery was stoning to death, a gruesome way to die. And God designed that because He knows the human heart. He knows the brokenness of sin. He designed it because capital punishment is instituted by God as a deterrent. You see, the reason we don't execute our criminals anymore is because we have failed to understand. We have stopped understanding human nature. We think that we're fundamentally good, but the Scripture says we are fundamentally broken. I'm not trying to be depressing here. I'm just, I'm just being honest. Because the Scripture says it. And I fear my God more than I fear you. And I will give an account of every word that I speak and every word that I fail to speak before my Master. And so I speak these things because I love you. I speak the truth because I am duty-bound to do it. This is a very serious offense that this woman is charged of who the Pharisees bring before Jesus. And I want you to see the scene. Jesus is seated there in the temple, and the people are, are seated around him. They, they, they don't have pews there in the courtyard. They don't have pews like we do or, or foldy chairs. They're probably, you know, they're seated on the floor. Maybe what we used to call Indian style, seated Indian style, crisscross applesauce, whatever they call it now. Or maybe, you know, they lean on a, on a pillow. Jesus is probably in the middle, and the crowd is around him. And he... He's teaching, and the crowd is hanging on his very words, listening attentively to the Son of God. And then the scene is rudely interrupted by these Pharisees who are dragging a woman into this crowd, into the scene where Jesus is teaching the Word of God. They're setting a trap. The Pharisees show up, with their attorneys, not because they want to protect the institution of marriage, not because they, have, that they want to protect that which God has designed as the core of the fabric of society. They're doing this. They appear on the scene 
shoving this woman before Jesus, not because they're seeking to protect God's law, but because they're seeking to trap Jesus. The Pharisees say this in verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. What then do you say? The Pharisees are correct. The Mosaic law given by God treated adultery as a capital crime that was subject to stoning, a terrible way to die, designed by God to discourage adultery. But something is wrong with this scene. Something is amiss with the Pharisees' action here, how they are approaching this. The scene that we have where the Pharisees and their lawyers drag this woman before Jesus, think about it. They drag the woman before Jesus for adultery. What's missing? Maybe I said that wrong. Who's missing? Where's the dude? Right? Because it takes two to tango. Where's the guy? They say she's been caught in the act. Well, if they caught her in the act, then they caught him in the act too. Where's the guy? That's a serious question here. Under the law, they were both to be stoned. Did the man escape? Or did the Pharisees let him go? Because the objective here is to use the woman to get to Jesus. You see, the Pharisees are cruel and callous. The woman is their tool to try and trap Jesus. To be sure, she's guilty. That is undisputed. She's guilty of the defense. There's no question about that, of the offense. No question. But they're really not concerned with putting her on trial. Their objective is to put Jesus on trial. Keep reading in verse 6. They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Here's the trap. If Jesus says, no, don't stone her, then he's blowing off the law. The very law that he, came, that he said he came to fulfill. Right? In Matthew 5, 17, he came, he said, I come not to abolish the law, to, but to fulfill it. And so if here he says, don't stone her, as the law clearly and specifically requires, then he's dismissing the law. And the credibility of his message is in great danger. He even could be putting himself at criminal risk to be brought up on charges of fomenting lawlessness if he doesn't say, pick up stones and stone her. But on the other hand, if he says, pick up stones and stone her, he will appear cruel, pushing uneven justice, because the man is not there also to be stoned. And he would be contradicting his reputation as merciful and gracious. Plus, some commentators believe that by the first century, especially in urban areas, that the punishment of capital punishment really wasn't being used. It was rarely enforced. Uh, 
for adultery. If Jesus says executor, he's probably also violating Roman law. Because Roman law required that you get Roman permission before you execute someone. So Jesus is caught on the horns of a dilemma. He's he's put in a box. Or is he? I mean, the Pharisees, the lawyers think that they've got him in a box. They think that they've got him trapped. And their purpose is to either discredit his ministry or to subject him to criminal liability. Keep reading in verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. This is the only time in all of Scripture that you ever find the Son of God, Jesus Christ, writing anything. There's been much, much, much speculation as to what he wrote. Some believe that he wrote Jeremiah 17, verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. It's possible that he wrote that. I mean, the day before, when it was the last day of the Feast of Booths, in the temple, in John chapter 7, verse 38, he spoke of living water, the, the, the offer of eternal life. So it's possible that Jesus wrote this, and he's, he's, he's dealing with unbelievers. These are Pharisees whose names are established and, and, and whose names will be written down as unbelievers, to use the language of Jeremiah 17. It's possible Jesus wrote that. It's also possible that Jesus wrote Exodus 23, verse 1, as some believe. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Maybe Jesus wrote what he's about to say orally in the next verse, in verse 7. The possibilities are endless. We don't know what he wrote because the text doesn't tell us. But certainly the fact that Jesus wrote concerning the law reminds us of what God did with the law. right? Because Moses in Exodus 31, 18, as we saw at the 930, when Moses is given the two tablets, they're written by the finger of God, is what Moses says. The two tablets of the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments. Written by the finger of God is what Exodus 31, verse 8 says. Now that's, a, that's language of accommodation. Because God is spirit. God doesn't have fingers and bones. God is spirit. In the Old Testament, that's language of accommodation. But in the New Testament, that's literal language. Because in the New Testament, when God became incarnate, sure enough, God has fingers. Jesus, God the Son incarnate, has fingers, and with his fingers he wrote something in the dust of the ground for all to see. What was it? We're not told. So, we should be careful with speculating too much. In verse 7, Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up, And said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead, Peter says. The Apostle Peter describes him as the judge of the living and the dead, which is to say Jesus is the judge of all humanity, believers and unbelievers. And here we see the judge's great, great righteousness and wisdom. Out of all who are present at the scene, there is but one who is righteous, and that is the judge. You see, the Pharisees have asked Jesus Jesus to judge, and so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to judge them. He's going to take their trap, and he flips it. He flips the trap on them. The judge here is Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead, the judge of all humanity, the judge who shows his righteousness and his great wisdom. In his wisdom, he's going to expose the Pharisees as hypocrites, while at the same time exposing this woman's guilt. He's not going to compromise the law. He's not going to say, you didn't commit adultery. He calls sin, sin. It's a great lesson for us. Because far too often our culture puts the pressure on us. Don't really call that thing a sin. Well, the Bible calls it a sin. I'm going to call it a sin. In his wisdom, he does both. He exposes the hypocrites and he condemns her for her guilt. Both. As only Jesus can do. Let me be very clear up front. Jesus is not repudiating the law. He's not blowing off the Mosaic law. He will not be doing that in this event. He's not doing that in any way. For example, he's not condemning capital punishment. It is godly for a nation to execute murderers. Did you hear me? It's godly for a nation to execute its murderers. We follow the word of God. God instituted that in Genesis 9 when, Mo, when, not Moses, when Noah got off the boat. He first gets off the boat with his family in Genesis 9. And God's, God lays out these requirements. One of them is capital punishment. The reason we don't execute our murderers is because we hate God. The reason we don't execute our murderers is because we don't value human life. Because God says in Genesis 9 that the murderer is to be executed because the victim is made in the image of God. God values his image so much that the consequence for obliterating his image, for murdering the one who was made in his image, is capital punishment. And that's laid out clearly in Genesis 9. Jesus is not trumping any of that. Even if he were trumping the law, which he's not, Genesis 9 precedes the law by well over a thousand years. Because that's Noah. The law doesn't come till Moses. Many, 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 many generations later. And so capital punishment has been established by God way before the law. But in any event, Jesus is not blowing off the law or repudiating, repudiating the law in any way. 
Those who have a low view of Scripture take the position that Jesus is blowing off the law. Those who have a low view of Scripture say, the God of the Old Testament, he was a meanie. He was ugly and cruel. And the God of the New Testament, he's soft and squishy and loving and merciful. Those who take that position have a low view of Scripture and frankly have either have not read the text, they're ignorant of the text, or they're just lying about the text because that is inconsistent with the Word of God. The, the, one, one of the very common phrases in the Old Testament is God is a God of chesed, is the Hebrew word. It's beautiful, beautiful Hebrew word. As one scholar put it, it is the most important word in all of Hebrew Bible other than the name of God, Yahweh. Chesed means loving kindness. Chesed means loyal love. Chesed can be trans, translated mercy. There's great mercy in the law, in the God of the Old Testament. And there's great mercy, but even more, in the God of the New Testament. So no, it's not two separate gods. It's one God who has revealed himself and showered us with even more mercy and grace and love than was in the Old Testament. But make no mistake, grace and mercy and love is all over the Old Testament. And make no mistake, there is law in the New Testament. We are under the law of Christ. There's both. Jesus is not repudiating the Old Testament. He is not repudiating the Mosaic law in any way, shape, or form. What he's doing when he says, let those of you who are without sin pick up the first stone, what he's doing is he's reminding these lawyers, these experts in the law, he's reminding them about the part of the law that applies to witnesses. To accusers. Here's what happens. Liberal theologians criticize the law as unfair and cruel. The Mosaic law, that is. In many ways, the Mosaic law has more protections for the accused than does our law, than does our Fifth Amendment. Life, as we, as we saw last time, life, liberty, property will not be removed, but by due process of law. That's our Fifth Amendment. I love it. In many, many ways, the Old Testament law gives more due process protections. Due process means a fair trial. Due process means the ability to defend your, the opportunity to defend yourself. In many ways, the Mosaic law gives more due process protections to the defendant, to the accused, than does our law. Especially in the area of witnesses. Multiple witnesses were required under the Mosaic law when it came to bringing charges against someone. You couldn't just do it on one witness. In capital cases under the Mosaic Law, the witnesses, who were the accusers, were required to throw the first stones. Oh, you say that guy committed that crime, that capital offense? Be it adultery or any of the other capital offenses under the, under the, the law. You say you saw him? You say you saw her? You're responsible to cast the first of the stones. You're responsible <clears throat> to flick the switch on the electric chair. You, Mr. Witness. I mean, that's a due process protection in and of itself. Number three, accusers, witnesses, 
had to be innocent of the particular crime that was under investigation. Not sinless. The accuser doesn't have to be sinless. Jesus isn't saying, okay, whichever one of you Pharisees, whichever one of you lawyers is sinless, pick up a stone. Jesus isn't saying that. That wasn't the requirement under the law. The accuser didn't have to be sinless, but he couldn't have been involved in the very crime that is the subject of the investigation, that is the subject of the indictment. Today, what a prosecutor will do is when the prosecutor has indicted multiple defendants for some crime, let's say you had a conspiracy to rob a bank, what the prosecutor does is the prosecutor tries to isolate one of the defendants and negotiate with that defendant. Look, if, if, if you will testify against the other co-conspirators, against the other bank robbers, I'll give you immunity, and I will not bring charges. I'll drop the indictment against you, Mr. Co-conspirator, Mr. Driver of the bank robbery. I'll give you immunity, an immunity deal. That's what the prosecutor does to get one of the the witnesses who saw it to get him to testify against the other co-conspirators. That was not allowed under the Mosaic Law. Because you couldn't be a witness, you couldn't be an accuser if you had been involved in the very crime. This is another due process protection, another fairness protection for the accused. And then the fourth requirement with respect to witnesses is that the accuser could not be a malicious witness. The witness could not be a malicious witness. Now, of course, the obvious way to be a malicious witness is to be a liar, is to, is to perjure yourself by giving false testimony. But there were other ways to be malicious witnesses. A malicious witness could be one by misusing the law to promote violence, to pervert justice. I'm sure you will find it hard to believe that sometimes people weaponize the legal system. That's very tough to believe, right? Sometimes people abuse the legal system to pervert justice. They weaponize it. It was back then, and it is today. If you did that back then, you were an accuser, you were a witness, and you fell into the category of a malicious witness because you were misusing the law to promote violence, to pervert justice, then there were severe consequences against you as the accuser. The very crime, the very, I should say, the the punishment, the penalty that you were trying to get imposed on that guy, inflicted on that guy, that's inflicted against you. If you're a malicious witness and you're bringing charges, you're accusing, you're saying, I saw such and such, maybe you're not a liar, but maybe in some other way you're trying to manipulate the, the legal system for your selfish reasons to pervert justice, then the then penalty, the punishment that would have gone against him comes on you. That's a pretty serious due process protection for the accused. I think what's happening here is that the Pharisees are, in fact, malicious witnesses. They're participants in the very crime that is under investigation. I think this is a setup. I think they set the woman up I'm not excusing her for her sin. No, Jesus will condemn her for her sin in a moment. He will address her sin in a moment. Let me say it this way. 
I said the wrong word. It's not that he's going to condemn her. He's going to focus on her sin in a moment. Because he says, I won't condemn you. I'm not minimizing her sin. But I am identifying the scene here. The Pharisees, I believe, have set the whole thing up. That's why their crony's not there. That's why their partner in crime, the guy who's in cahoots with the lawyers, isn't there. Because they had to catch them both, the man and the woman. But the man's not there, and it's just the woman. That's why they don't bring him in. If I could summarize Jesus' response to the Pharisees, it goes like this. Yes, stoning is the penalty for this adulterer. Yes. I mean, Jesus is recognizing that stoning is the penalty. He doesn't say, no, 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 that's not the penalty. He says, whichever one of you is without sin, pick up the first stone. In that statement, it's an acknowledgement that stoning is the penalty for adultery. Summarizing Jesus' response, it goes like this. Yes, stoning is the penalty for adultery. And so is it for malicious witnesses. You boys have skin in the game too, is essentially what Jesus is saying. If you're not a malicious witness, if you're not here trying to abuse the legal system to pervert justice, then pick up a stone and hit her with it. But on the other hand, if you're here trying to manipulate the legal system, then think again. Think long and hard. Because you've got skin in the game on this as well. And of course, Jesus' words, as always, are effective. Jesus' words do not return to him empty without accomplishing their purpose. If you want legal citations for this description of for the, the requirements for witnesses and accusers, here are the citations in the Mosaic Law. Exodus 23, verses 1 through 8. Deuteronomy 13, verse 9. Deuteronomy 17, verse 7. 19. Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 through 21. And Leviticus 24, verse 14. Then we keep reading in verse 8 of chapter 8. It says this, Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. This is the second time that Jesus is writing on the ground. Like the first time, we don't know what he wrote. But by bending over and writing on the ground, Jesus is actually taking some pressure off of the Pharisees. He's not looking at them while he's writing, right? So he's graciously, even towards the Pharisees, he's graciously letting them think about what he said. Letting them think about how they have skin in the game because he's not... He's not eyeballing them. He's not staring at them. He's looking somewhere else. After he's just said these words of warning to the Pharisees, he looks somewhere else, and I think that, that kind of relieves some of the, the pressure of the scene. Then we keep reading in verse 9. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Light, as always, displaces the darkness. As the morning 
rays of the sun enter the courtyard of the temple where they are gathered, the Word of God scatters off these lawyers. It scatters off these Pharisaic lawyers because they came to Jesus trying to foist a trap upon him. And his word, the light of his word, exposes it. Through the power of the word of God, Jesus convicted the consciences of the Pharisees and they departed, in effect, acknowledging themselves as malicious witnesses. Their behavior of, he's looking away, fast feet don't fail me now. That behavior, that exit, quick exit, stage left, validates them being malicious witnesses in the first place. And it says the older ones left first. It doesn't tell us why, but it may be because they were the first to be convicted in their hearts. Sometimes as you get older, you get more mindful of your past failures. Sometimes you get more sensitive to your sin. That may be what's happening as to why the older ones leave first. The text uses the word alone, that Jesus was alone with a woman. I think it's saying the accusers are gone. Jesus is there. The woman's there. But we haven't read anything that that the audience around Jesus that were listening to his word, we haven't read anything that they have been dispersed. I think they're there as well. But all the accusers are gone. And instead... This woman's advocate is in her presence. Jesus is described as our advocate by the Apostle John in 1 John. I don't want you to miss the shame of this scene. The woman stands there as the adulterer that she is. Her head probably hangs low and and her eyes reflect her sin. It's true that Jesus has run off the Pharisaic hypocritical accusers, but she's still guilty as charged. Keep reading, and you see Jesus' response to her in verse 10. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, Sin no more. If you think that this is saying that Jesus is soft on sin, you couldn't be more wrong. And you entirely miss the point of the passage. It's true that Jesus ran off this murderous gang of hypocritical Pharisees. And it's true that Jesus forgives her. But he calls her action what it is. Sin. And he utters those now famous words, go forth and sin no more. He means, don't commit adultery again. Jesus is not soft on sin at all. In the prior chapter in John chapter 7, verse 7, he explains that the world hates him because he calls their deeds evil. That's John chapter 7, verse 7. And soon we will see in John chapter 15, verse 22, that he says that the world has no excuse for their sin. 
Six months from now, Jesus will be nailed to a tree for this woman's sin of adultery and will pay the penalty before Almighty God for her sin, the eternal penalty for her sin of adultery, as well as for the sins of the entire world, yours and mine included. Of course, Jesus takes sin incredibly seriously. God's forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences for sin. David, King David, is a prime example of that with his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. After he confessed his sin before God, the prophet Nathan explained in 2 Samuel 12, which we will see during our study of Samuel, of First and Second Samuel on Wednesday nights. But after David confessed his sin with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan explained that God had forgiven him. But David, for the rest of his life, would suffer the consequences of that sin. Like this woman will suffer the consequences of her adultery for the rest of her life, though she is forgiven from God. God's forgiveness means if you're an unbeliever and you accept God's forgiveness, that means you're no longer subject to His eternal judgment, to His eternal condemnation, to His eternal wrath, which you richly deserve, as we all do before we come to Christ. Now you're His child. You're His daughter. You're His son. You're no longer his enemy. That's what God's forgiveness means for the unbeliever who trusts Christ. God's forgiveness for the believer. Like in David's case, he's already a believer. He's believed. He's trusted in the Lord. Remember, salvation is always the same in every age. Old Testament, New Testament. Salvation is always the same. By faith alone. It is by grace through faith in the Lord. As the Lord has revealed himself in that era. The Lord has revealed himself further in our area, in our era, because he has come in the flesh, incarnate. And so David was a believer. God's forgiveness for the believer is restoration of fellowship, restoration to that intimate walk with him, to live your life with him, to walk with him as the child of God, which you are. You can't lose your salvation. And so we're the child of God, and so we should act the way we actually are, consistent with our identity. Based on Jesus' words, I do not condemn you. I believe that this woman is a believer. I believe that this woman is saved. The point of our passage today is to show that Jesus is the righteous judge He is both eternally righteous and eternally wise. He came not to contravene or to repudiate the law, but to fulfill it, to validate it, to confirm it. You see, the law brings conviction. The way we know that we're fallen, broken sinners is the way an Israelite would know that they were not right with God is that the law would expose their sinfulness because the law identifies all these broken characteristics of humanity. And so the Mosaic law was designed to point the Israelite, it was designed to reveal God's holiness, but also to point the Israelite to his unholiness, 
to her unholiness and to realize that it is God and God alone who's holy. And it is God and God alone who we need to solve our sin problem. It is through God's great mercy that he spares us what we deserve, which is eternal judgment and his eternal wrath. God's forgiveness does not excuse sin. It draws us to him. God's forgiveness draws us to him with gratitude and with respect and with awe. God's forgiveness motivates us to obey him. Warren Worsby says it well. God's forgiveness motivates the penitent sinner to live a holy and obedient life to the glory of God. Worsby is right to cite and refer to Psalm 130. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 130 as we close this morning. It's a short psalm. And there the psalmist makes this point that we're seeing. Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Supplications, the Hebrew there is this idea of my pleading, my begging. Let your voice be responsive to my begging, God, to my pleading. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Do you fear God? The concept of fearing God is not in the corner cowering. The concept of fearing God is to approach Him in awe and wonder and reverential respect. You see, what the psalmist says is, because you forgive me of my sin, oh, I respect you. The psalmist doesn't view forgiveness as a license to sin. The psalmist views it as a license to love. To love God for His great mercy. To approach Him in awe and reverence and respect. Because God doesn't give us what we deserve. You see, grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. Judgment and wrath. What I deserve, judgment and wrath for for our sins. That's mercy. Not giving us what we deserve. And grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Unmerited favor from God. Or if you prefer the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. You see, the psalmist here loves God's forgiveness and he honors God and praises God and worships God and reveres Him for the, the, the forgiveness that we receive. This is countercultural, right? Because the cultural approach is sweet, I missed that one. <laughs> nice, I didn't get popped for that one. But what the Word of God calls us to, to do is to worship God because He has forgiven us. We love Him because He loved us 
First, first John. Keep reading in verse 5. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. What does a morning watchman do? Back then, a watchman on the wall, he'd be watching. He's looking, looking. The psalmist is looking longingly for the deliverance, for the mercy, for the chesed of God. Verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is chesed. Loving kindness, loyal love, mercy, kindness. And with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Maybe you're here today, this morning, and you don't know the God of Israel. The God of Israel who has come in the flesh. Yahweh in the flesh who is Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're here today without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life. We want you to know that God loves you. God loves you. He loves you just as you are. But He loves you enough to not leave you as you are. He loves you with a love that will not let you go, that pursues you. Though you are, make no mistake, His enemy. You are the enemy of God. If you have not been saved. That's how we all are. That's how the scripture, that's how Paul describes us in the New Testament as the enemies of God until we come to Christ. Because God can't just blow off our sin. He must condemn it. Otherwise he wouldn't be righteous. And we love the fact that he's righteous. We love the fact that he's holy. Because that's what makes heaven heaven. Because heaven wouldn't be a place of unspeakable joy. If there was an absolute holiness there. His holiness excludes and precludes any sort of wickedness. Even the slightest of sins are excluded from heaven. Praise God from that. Praise, praise God for that because from that righteousness, through that righteousness, we receive access to God. When we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the receiving of eternal life, we receive His righteousness. He transfers Christ's righteousness to us so He doesn't see us as the sinners that we are. He sees us as righteous, holy, having received, or if you prefer the theological term, imputed righteousness. That righteousness is given to us. That's what happens when you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. You stop being the enemy of God and you become his daughter, his son, his child in an instant of time. When the Philippian jailer said to the Apostle Paul and to Silas, what must I do to be saved? They said very clearly, very plainly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If you refuse to believe in Christ, you will go to hell. I love you too much to soft sell this. The scripture doesn't soft sell it. In fact, Jesus describes it as the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
You say, I will not believe in a God who is exclusivistic. You say, I will not believe in a God who throws those who refuse to believe in His Son in the flesh. I will not believe in a God who refuses to believe in Christ or who, who throws those who refuse to believe in Christ in hell. You say, I won't trust that God. I won't believe that God. You will. You will. Because right now you have the prerogative to believe in Him or not believe in Him. One day He will remove that prerogative from you. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Even those who will go to the lake of fire forever. When you study the lake of fire, it is a place of great torments. You read it in the book of Revelation. It is a place of eternal torments. As I say, the place that Jesus described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there is no reason for you to go there. No reason. No reason. It is the place where the devil will reside forever. The devil will be your roommate forever. The evil one. The one who Jesus described as a murderer from the beginning. Because hell is prepared for the devil and his fallen angels, Jesus says. And so all who align with him spend eternity with him. But those who align with God by trusting in his son spend eternity with him because everybody's going to live forever. Everybody's going to live forever. The question is where and with whom? Eternal life doesn't mean you're going to live forever. You already, because you're a human, you will live forever. Eternal life means quality of life, not quantity of life. Eternal life means living with the author of life forever. Forever. In a place that the Apostle Paul was transported to. The Apostle Paul was described, he describes himself being transported to the third heaven, and he's not allowed to speak of it, but for one word. You know the word. Paradise. That's the word he uses for heaven. That's the only word he's used, he's allowed to speak of, to use to speak of the event that he was transported to. Paradise. That's your destiny. Don't you want to go there? Don't you want to have fellowship with the author of life? The best blessing of eternal life is fellowship with the author of life. The secondary blessing is all of the wonders of heaven. But the first blessing is fellowship and relationship with Almighty God. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you because you are an awesome God. We praise you that you have recorded your word for us. We praise you that your word does not go forth into this world empty without returning to you having accomplished its purpose. We praise you that the person named the word of God, Jesus Christ, came to reveal your spoken and written word that we may study it thousands of years later. We ask that you enlighten us by these things, plant these things deep in our souls, transform our wicked ways of thinking that we have learned from the spirit of the age and a wicked world that has conditioned us and taught us even since we were children. We ask that you challenge us by these things. And we pray all these things in the name of his majesty, 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself.